putting myself there, I guess. Well, if you have a Bible, we won't be getting into it immediately, but the passage that we will be reading will be out of Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. This morning we're going to begin a series on a topic that is impossible to cover, literally. And and really we could say that with probably most things in Scripture. Uh, But this, this again, enters us into a place of, of grandeur and expanse that is truly limitless. It's often referred to as the attributes of God. The attributes of God. What is an attribute? And you could, simply, what is an attribute? A characteristic, a quality, um, something that it would be true uh, about. So if I was saying um, they're, they're, an attribute of Bob is that he is kind, um, and you'd say, okay, that's, that's true about Bob. That's, it's, it's, it's one of his characteristics, one of his qualities. Uh, you can check that with Fran later, um, see if that's... <laughs> So when we refer to the attributes of God, we're we're really basically asking the question, what is God really like? What is God really like? Seems like a simple enough question. Now someone may ask, uh, when we ask the question, what is God really like? They might say or or think, you know, isn't that just mere theology that, that really doesn't come into any practical application of who I should be and what I should do and how I should live my life? And my answer to that is that there's really nothing more practical than knowing God as he really is. If I'm to be a worshiper of God, if I'm to be one who trusts in God, if I'm to be one who petitions God and prays to God and relates to God, if I'm to be one who follows after God's ways... If I'm to combat pride and fear, there's no better practical remedy than a clear and clear vision of the majesty of God. A.W. Tozer wrote, When we were we able to extract from any man a complete answer to the question, what comes to mind when you think about God, we might predict with certainty the spiritual future of that man. I, I say that because I respect that point. I don't even know if I agree with it 100% because God is a God that does miracles, that enters in to points in people's lives where you'd say they had a very small vision of God and then he gives him, him, an ex, him or her an experience with himself and that changes. But the idea is, what do you think about God? What comes to mind when you think about God Is it a lowly picture, or is it a very, very high picture? Now, when we ask, what is God really like? I should first point out that I'm not speaking of a God among many gods, but rather the God of Scripture, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of David, the God of the prophets, the God who sent his son, his one and only son, God the Son, Jesus, the God who sent his Holy Spirit, the God whose Holy Spirit is still moving among us, and is the God that is still bringing people in and adopting 
new children and forming his spiritual family, even to this day. The God of the Bible makes it abundantly clear that he is the only God. Isaiah 45, 5 says, I am the Lord and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. Some would say, well, that's very arrogant. But again, I'm taking God on his word. I'm taking God to understand who he is and to be, be able to proclaim that clearly. It's God who states that, not man, that he is the only God. The theme of this series is a question asked by God himself, actually several times in the Bible, where he says, To whom will you compare me? To whom will you compare me? It's a rhetorical question. There, there's many athletes that have come and gone. They say, well, well, I'm the best. To whom will you compare me? And there's an, always an athlete that will come up and defeat them. There's always men and women who strut and say, I'm the best. I'm number one. No one can, no one can come to the, close to who I am. But there will always be someone who comes along that's smarter and stronger and faster, more accomplished. But God has for all eternity asked the question, to whom will you compare me? And no one has been found to be his equal. He has no, no competition. All other gods are frauds. But there is a fundamental problem with the question, what is this one true God really like? And, and we, we meet this problem pretty quickly because one of the attributes of God is that he is infinite, that he is beyond all limitation. And again, that is something that really is beyond our pay grade, beyond our understanding, that he's infinite in every way, in every aspect about him, of himself. He has no bounds, no limitation. He is also transcendent. He's beyond all definable categories. He's far above and beyond all that exists, including space and time. I don't know if you've ever heard someone really intelligent <clears throat> speak. Of, uh, I was talking to Brianna yesterday about astrophysicists, I believe. And I don't know if you've ever heard someone really intelligent talk about something, uh, something profound in, in science or, or mathematics. And you realize about 30 seconds in, uh, no comprende, right? I have, you know, after, after about 30 seconds, you, you, you know this is beyond me. I do not understand what we're talking about. And the reality is that everything about God is like that. Time's infinity. God is so vast. So we can say, how can we even begin to know what an infinite God, a boundless God, a limitless God is really like? J.I. Packer wrote in Knowing God... God the creator is transcendent, mysterious, and inscrutable beyond the range of any imagining or philosophical guesswork of which we are capable. But here's the beautiful, the wonderful, 
the most joyous thing is that this inexhaustible God has chosen to reveal himself. He's found pleasure in making himself known. He's done this through creation, at least at one level. He's done this through his word that we have in the scriptures. He's done this through his son, Jesus Christ, the image of the invisible God, the one who says, if you see me, you see the Father. He's done this through the Holy Spirit that he's poured out on the church. So on one hand, it's very true to say that God is never completely knowable. How could finite beings comprehend the infinite? But on the other hand, he has revealed enough of himself that we can get a genuine depiction of who he is. And in turn, and this is, what, this is glory beyond glory, his desire is that we, should, that we should not just simply know more about him, but that we would come to know him in the relational sense of knowing. That's the goal. So if I spoke for one week or a trillion weeks on what is God really like, we would never remotely answer the question. But the goal in the end is to not just know more about God, but to consider how he has revealed himself to understand him as such, and then to ultimately relationally know him in that context. Scripture is clear, and we sang about it this morning, and Daniel shared about this morning. That can only happen through Jesus. The relational knowing of God is not an academic knowledge. You can never read enough books. You can never study the Bible enough to know God. It only happens through Jesus. For Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And on the flip side, the most dreadful thing that could ever be heard in all of eternity is for us to stand before the Lord on judgment today, the Lord who knows all, and for him to say, I never knew you never knew you. Away from me. So as we begin our journey this morning, I want us to consider how God has revealed himself. And again, we're just beginning to prime the pump for several weeks to come, of which we could speak a trillion weeks and never touch the surface. And as we enter in and we look at Exodus chapter 3, the backdrop we have to remember is that of Genesis that God has revealed himself through creation, and he is the orchestrator, that he is the instigator of all creation, the creator himself, and he is a relational God toward that creation, especially with mankind. But he is not only a relational God, he is also a holy God, a God that gave mankind a free will, but mankind, man and woman, that first man and woman chose to rebel, sending the entire human race on a path of rebellion and causing a a seemingly insurmountable rift between God and man. 
But again, the whole story of the Bible is instead of annihilation, <laughs> there were this holy God could have said, well, I gave you a chance. I gave you a free will. Now you're on your own. Now you're all dead. We did choose death over life. But instead of annihilating us, he immediately begins a path of restoration, a way in which we can come back into fellowship with himself. Ultimately, that's seen in Jesus. But we see it even from the very beginnings through this covenant God to his people of faith. And by the time we get to Exodus, this faith community that's being formed from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob now finds themselves in Egypt. And they've been slaves for centuries. They're known at this time as the Hebrews. And here God is about to do a great work of salvation that we have to understand as the prototype of the greater salvation to come. That Moses is called to be a deliverer of, his, of God's people that are enslaved in Egypt, but it's only a prototype of the greater deliverer, Jesus Christ, who will save his people from sin and from death. Prior to Moses, God was known to the Hebrew patriarchs by many, many titles. Many, one of them was, as we sang this morning, El Shaddai, God Almighty. But as Moses is called, God reveals a way of understanding him that sounds at first blush completely and really maybe compellingly simple, but actually reveals astounding complexity and grandeur. I'm just going to read Exodus 3, 1 through 15. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that the bush was on fire, that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I'll go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. Then the Lord, when the Lord saw that Moses had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Now the cry of the Israelites has, has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I 
that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt. And God said, I will be with you. And this will be a sign to you that is that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers who has, has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. So many of you know this story. Moses is not a young man at this point. He has fled Egypt, fled his family of adoption, so to speak. He is a murderer on the run. And God is calling him to go back to Egypt. Notice that God doesn't say, Moses, you are going to be the one that rescues my people. God says he is the one that has come down to rescue his people. And Moses is the instrument. Much could be talked about here in this passage, but what I want to consider most specifically is the name by which God calls himself as we think about the attributes of God, the characteristics, the, the nature, the qualities of God. I remember reading this as a child, and I remember thinking that this was quite confusing. <laughs> That God would say that he is, or his name is, I am who I am. It sounded like Popeye to me. What does that mean? This is where the name Yahweh is derived from. In many, places, uh, in many of your Bibles, uh, in your English Bibles, it's translated Lord. So when you see Lord capitalized, uh, by and large, it's that, it's that name of God, Yahweh. I am who I am. What a strange way for God to refer to himself. What do we learn from God in this name? For one, I think we're invited to something that is obviously implied. The I am is the God that is. He really exists. He really is one that has a personality that has a presence. This presence was already spoken of to Moses. He says, I will be with you. He really is. He's not a fairy tale. He's not a theory. He's not just the imaginations of our mind. He's not religion. He is himself, the very real, very present God. Now, this is difficult for many because he is the invisible God. So many people have a hard time believing what they haven't seen for themselves, what they haven't experienced for themselves. But as it's been said, just because you do not believe 
that something that is true is true doesn't make it less true. <clears throat> I heard a man of a man this past week, true story, <laughs> this past week, there was a man from uh, the Cleveland, Ohio area that called the police late one night. He said he was returning home from work, just got out of the train station. So this, we're not talking about like Tioga County setting. We're talking about like the suburbs of Cleveland. And he calls the police and he tells them that he's being followed by a pig. It's a true story. I, I have a pig following me and I don't know what to do. So, again, if, if I called them in Tioga County, they'd probably go, oh, we'll be right out. We've got to see whose pig that is. But in Cleveland, Ohio, they do not believe the man at all. He just got off the train. He th they, they think, surely, surely, he's drunk and he's hallucinating. He's seeing things. So they thought, well, at the very least, we have to go investigate. So the police go out and they find a man very sober, and they find a pig following him, like rubbing up against his leg. And It's a true story. They said the pig was incredibly friendly, and the pig wouldn't leave his side. So the trooper had to eventually, there was a picture of it. The trooper put the pig in his, in his, uh, in his squad car and had to figure out it was somebody's pet that had got out. But at times, some things just sound so hard to believe, but they're worth investigating. And, and I know that's a trite and silly example, but, but if, that, if, if the police had to go out and investigate what this guy was saying, is it true? Is it not true? What's going on here? Isn't it worth investigating God? Even if, even if you're having a, such a hard time and struggling with faith, and, and how could this possibly be true? If, it's, if there's the remotest chance that it's true, isn't it worth investigating? Isn't it worth calling out to the Lord and saying, if you're true, reveal yourself as such. And here, in this exchange with Moses, God is telling us that he is. But the next layer that we can take, the next simple step is that not only that he is, but that he is who he is. Not what we think he should be, not even what we understand him to be, not what we want him to be or attempt to create him to be. God is who he is and nothing other. This means we must approach, we must approach God on his terms, not ours. I have a great respect for, for addiction recovery programs, uh, programs like AA, programs like NA, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous. They've done a wonderful work, and they, they have brought tools and the solidarity and the relational accountability that countless people need that have been tied up and, and are looking to be rescued out of the addictions that they find themselves in. Many of these programs actually have guiding principles that are taken from Scripture. They encourage their members to be accountable to what they call a higher power. Or, and, and this terminology is, is uh, right out of one of the handbooks, or to God as I understand him. 
Now, there's part of this wording that I appreciate. Because as I stated, no one will ever fully understand God. He's unsearchable in all his ways. Yet there's another aspect of this that I think reveals a common flaw in how we want to approach God. We want to limit him to our understanding. Instead of understanding him as he has revealed himself to be. God too often becomes in our minds the image of what we want him to be. Removing those things that make us uncomfortable, whatever those things may be. We fashion a God in our own image rather than the God that really is. We want a God that's powerful enough to give us what we want, maybe even what we need but not so powerful that we can't dictate what he does and doesn't do. Not so powerful that we can't control him. We want a God that is big, that is holy, that is other, but maybe not so holy that we'd have to revere him and obey him. And again, I use this addiction recovery terminology not as a critique of their work. I think it's a beautiful work. I'd like, as, we, as I think about the new pro- property out, Liberty, I, I am very eager to see a redic- addiction recovery program started there. I think it would be an awesome location. But I, I use this terminology as an example of a uni- universal problem, that God will not be molded and confined to our understanding of him. It should be the exact opposite. We should be molded to the reality of who he actually is. Another truth we see in in God saying that he is the I am is what theologians would say is that God is eternally self-existent. And what that means is that he's never had a source other than himself. He's never had a beginning. He was never born. He, He was never formed. He was never a cause in which there was never a cause in which he was an effect He never one day came to be, right? So a child might say, Daddy, Mommy, where did God come from? Well, he never came from. He is eternally self-existent. He is the God who always and forever is. The uncreated one who answers to no one but himself. His existence is, is... is an endless arrow in every direction. From eternity past, I am. For eternity future, I am. My existence, on the other hand, was created within time and space and is only possible because the timeless God deemed it so. uh, Centuries ago, an old French philosopher, René Descartes, once famously said, I think, therefore, I am. But in reality, I am only because the great I am deemed it so. Again, A.W. Tozer says, Think God away, and man has no ground for existence. So coupled with this self-existence, we also see a God who is eternally self-sustaining. 
He's self-existent and self-sustaining. He's so complete within himself that he's never, has never, and will never need anything but himself. Period. God is complete within himself. He needs nothing else but himself. There's many people that like to think that, but it's only true for God. Isaiah 40, 28 says, Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is an everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow weary, tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. Why? Because his existence and his vitality are inexhaustible. Consider this in the passage that we just read. Moses sees a bush that is, appears, for all intents and purposes, to be what? On fire. It's burning. And he says, oh, what a strange thing. Because it's on fire. It wasn't strange that it was on fire. It was strange that it was what? Not consumed. So he says, what a strange thing. I have to go over and see this, this oddity. How is it that a bush is on fire, but it's not consumed? And then he, he realizes that the presence of God is speaking out of the bush. But let's think about how God visually presented himself. The bush is on fire, but it's not consumed. Why? Why wouldn't the bush be consumed? Isn't God a consuming fire? Couldn't he have, I mean, I would think his presence would have just whoop, annihilated the bush. Why? Yeah, the fire didn't need the bush. God didn't need added fuel. You understand? He didn't need to consume the bush. He, he only needs himself. When we think of the fire consuming something, it's fuel. And as soon as that fuel is gone, what? The fire is gone. God doesn't need the fuel. He is himself an endless supply of divine energy. God, God and Christ are described many times in Scripture as light and life because they, they need no outside source to be alive, no outside source to be illuminated. It's the exact opposite. We are the ones. Everything else is in need of life being granted, of illumination being granted. But God and Christ are light and life within themselves. This is, again, why pride is the greatest vice. Pride tempts me to think that I am the all-sufficient one. I can do it on my own. I need no one else. I, I answer to no one else. We, like Satan in our pride, are tempted to try and ascend above God, to be our own gods. That is the essence where all sin flows out of, our pride. I can do it on my own. I can make my own decisions. I can, be, I can create my own morality. I need no one else. Those things are only true of God. But when we instead humble ourselves and bow down to the God who is, we find ourselves in the care of the one who has a nonstop supply of good at his disposal within himself. Now, we can say that Moses, in a sense, has the opposite problem. 
Moses, at this point in his life, has been so humbled. And some people are at that point. Some people, you know, again, maybe you're still at the point that your pride is keeping you from Christ. That you need to humble yourself before the Lord to recognize that he is the God who is. But Moses had been so humbled that he was self-defeating, that he, he had so much self-doubt that he couldn't even imagine that God could use him. Maybe that's the place that you're in this morning. Moses, we could say, turned self-doubt into God-doubt. It's actually another form of trying to limit God. Oh, God, you couldn't use me. Don't you know me? Don't you know the wreck that I am? Don't you know the mistakes that I've made? Don't you, don't you, know, don't you know my flaws? Don't you know how weak I am? Don't you know how I, how, I, how I stumble over my words? Whatever it may be, say, God, you couldn't use me. But the I am is calling Moses to trust in the one whose supply knows no end. The one whom can choose whoever he wants to to do his work. He doesn't need Moses, right? That's the whole point. He doesn't need him. He needs no one but what? Himself. He doesn't need Moses. He doesn't need me. He doesn't need my money. He calls and he chooses and he wants. Need? No. He's saying, Moses, I am the I am. Moses, it's not about your flaws. It's not about your weaknesses. It's about my infinite strength. It's about my infinite power, my infinite presence that I'll show through you. A man named R. Allen Cole comments that the revelation of the name, this I am, is not merely a deep theological truth. It's a call to a response of faith for Moses and Israel. And so it still is for us. The God that is, the all-sufficient one, if he's, if he's all-sufficient within himself, he's certainly all-sufficient to meet my needs. And he's all-sufficient to enable me to do what he calls me to do. J.A. Montier says, I am is the living, I love this, omni, or all, omnicompetent God. Where Moses was inadequate, God is more than sufficient. Where Moses was weak, almighty power would be at work. God is I am. The God who is, the God who is who he is and nothing other. Not certainly not who we would invent him to be. The God who eternally exists and is eternally sustained because he is himself. He is God and there is no other. To whom will you compare God? No one. Yet this God who needs nothing but himself, this is the miracle, folks. That's the astounding reality, the truth of God. Then the miracle is, is, that, is that this God who needs nothing but himself cares for you.
that he is the God that calls you to himself. He is the God that has sent his deliverer, Jesus, his son, to save you. He's the God that assures you, I will be with you. He is the God that commissions you to his service. What grace that God who has no hint of need outside of himself would sacrifice so much of himself to retain us, to regain us, that he would send even his only son to die for us, that even in his utter completeness, that he would choose to want us. So we could echo the words of the psalmist as Daniel has already prayed this morning. When I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? But he does indeed care. Peter tells us in Peter 5, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the, God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him. Why? Because he cares for you. So I'm going to close with a prayer, very simple prayer, again, out of A.W. Tozer's book, and thank you, Robert, for loaning me that book, The, the Knowledge of the Holy. And if you would, you could just pray along with me. O Lord Almighty, not the God of philosophers and the wise, but the God of the prophets and the apostles, and better than all, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, may I express you unblamed, They that know you not may call upon you as other than you are, and so worship not you, but a creature of their own fancy. Therefore, enlighten our minds that we may know you as you are, and that we may perfectly love you and worthily praise you. In the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. Amen.